As we're working our way through the Heidelberg Catechism, we've reached the point of the Apostles' Creed where it speaks of the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so in connection with that, we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 50 to 58. 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 50 to 58. You'll be able to find that on page 1325 of your pew Bible. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Word of God. We will also be reading from Lord's Day 16, and you'll, you'll be able to find that on page 530 of your book of praise. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what do you expect to happen to you when you die? We're mostly young people here. Our youngest member was born a little over a month and a half ago, and the average age of our church is about 25 years old. So chances are that we don't think about death very much. 
It's just not something that sits at the forefront of our minds. But let me read a parable from Jesus for you for a moment. Luke 12, verses 16 to 20. He then spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no more room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will be those things which you have provided? What's the moral of this parable? Christ lays that out for us in verse 21. Such is the person who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. To avoid the thought of death and the thought of facing God is a grave mistake. To make life, this life in particular, your only focus is an even greater mistake. You know, there are very few places in which God directly calls someone a fool in the Bible. But the person who takes on this kind of an attitude towards life, laying up, a treasure, laying up treasure for himself or herself on earth, making getting comfortable in this life their only goal, and not giving a thought to eternal things, that falls under the, that umbrella. God himself calls such a person a fool. Thankfully, our catechism doesn't give us the opportunity to take such a non-reflective attitude towards life. Its very nature as a document that goes through the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer makes it very difficult for you to go through one week, from one week to another without reflecting on eternal things. But the Apostles' Creed, in which we usually go through uh, at least once a year, the Apostles' Creed in particular is helpful here as that is where we are forced to slow down and to reflect, how am I going to face death? Now, if you could turn to our passage again, we'll see this as we examine 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 50 to 58, under the following theme and points. Facing death in the death of Christ. And we'll see, first of all, satisfaction for sins, and second, a gateway to new life. The opening words of our passage don't seem to bode too well for us, do they? We read in verse 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. What is this corruption that they're talking about? Is it simply the corruption of the body? Something that traps us here in this world, that influences us? Or is there something more to it? There's a Greek philosopher named Plato who lived four centuries before Christ. He was a huge influence on Greek philosophy in all the centuries that followed and actually continues to be a huge influence on a lot of prominent thinkers today. One of his arguments was that the body is the prison house of the soul. 
You boys and girls can think of the picture of one of these old prisons with dirty walls and gray stone stretching up to a tiny window that lets light peek in through the top. This Greek man, Plato, says that your soul is like a prisoner in that jail cell. And it can't wait to be let go. It can't wait to escape and not be tied to the aches and pains and limits that come with being human. But that's not the way that God talks about the body, is it? What did he say when he created the world? What did he say after he created humans? Genesis 1 verse 31, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. But though we know that everything was created good, we recognize that it didn't stay that way. Certainly, the body didn't become a prison for the soul, but something did change, and that something was the fall into sin. Adam and Eve turned against God, and turning against God, let corruption enter into the world. The Greek word here that they give for corruption means a few different things. In some situations, it means the breakdown of things, so decay, things running down, entropy, you might have heard in school. Or it can mean the ruination of a person through an immoral act. It can mean inward depravity. And in some cases, it can mean all of those things coming together to describe the total destruction of an entity. As a fourth option, that seems to be what it's meant to be in this place. Everything being broken down, body, mind, and spirit, everything being plunged into darkness. Everything about man has been corrupted by the fall into sin, and all of creation has been plunged into ruin. For man, the corruption, corruption of his body, death entering into his body, became a sign of sin's control. You'll notice that wherever you find the word sinful nature in more modern translations, you'll see that many traditional translations translated as literally the flesh. Being in the flesh became a picture of being caught by, by lust, by sinful passions, and by every sinful action. It became a picture of everything that represented the fall. This is a problem because mankind corrupted cannot enter into the presence of God. Consider in the Old Testament when God revealed himself on the top of Mount Sinai with fire and clouds and storm. The Israelites were to put a fence around the mountain to keep the people and animals off the mountain in case they were to touch the mountain and die. Throughout the Old Testament, God mostly appeared to his people in the temple and the tabernacle. He was everywhere, but he appeared there in a special way. Because of this, even the high priest himself feared to come into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement for fear of coming face to face with the presence of God. What if his purification was done improperly? would have sealed his doom. Why? As one theologian wrote, because even a sinful high priest could not encounter 
the unmediated presence of God without being destroyed. The holiness of God is no joke. It is consuming, glorious, brilliant, undoing, crushing, overwhelming, and terrifying. Truly understanding the holiness of God produces a deep fear of the Lord within us. When Isaiah saw just the train of God's robe in Isaiah 6, he immediately began calling down divine curses on himself. In essence, he called for God's wrath to be poured out on him because he was a sinful man. He knew that the moment God encountered sin, he was morally obligated to obliterate it. In one place after another, this was shown and reinforced for the Old Testament people of God. Humanity cannot enter into the presence of God without a mediator because he is perfect and he is holy. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God be punished. Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Humanity cannot enter into the presence of God because justice is part of the essence of God. Justice is who he is along with love and holiness and perfection and goodness. And so payment must be made. But then the thought comes, aha, well, if we're released from this body, that should be okay, right? If sinful flesh is the problem, then why don't we just rid ourselves of our flesh? This was one of the thoughts that went through people in the early days of the church. You had people who would withdraw themselves from all of society, who would beat themselves and who would starve themselves in order to bring their bodies under submission, to try purify their bodies coming before God. Unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. Because we are corrupted down to our very core. The flesh with its weaknesses and its temptations and its tendency to wear down and die out might be a symbol of our fallen nature, but it's not the only fallen part of us. It's not like we have good souls that are trapped in evil bodies that are out of our control. We are corrupted by sin, body and soul. This is why Jesus spoke about hell as the second death so often in his time on earth. Even before the final resurrection, he speaks of people being thrown into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not enough for them to shed the body and to come before God with just their souls. No. When they die, there's still what he calls the second death, the utter darkness. There's a spiritual corruption that goes even beyond the physical. So when Paul writes in our passage today, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he's not just writing about the physical. He's using an age-old biblical picture that represents a spiritual reality. Humanity was broken, sinful, and corrupt after the fall. And corruption does not inherit incorruption. 
And herein lies the mystery that Paul writes about. The truth of our one day standing before God is undeniable. It will happen. God himself spoke of this through Job many years ago when Job wrote in chapter 19, verse 26 of the book, Job, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. But how is that going to be possible? How can sinful flesh enter into the presence of God? The answer comes in the very words that Job himself had spoken moments before. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And Paul, too, points us into that same direction. We have a Savior. A Savior who is spotless and blameless. One who was fully man and shared in the brokenness and sorrow and shame that being human lends itself to. And yet he did it without sin. He was unique among the human race. He shared in our flesh. And the very thing that had come to symbolize the weakness and frailty of humanity became an avenue for him to show his true power. Sharing in our flesh and blood, taking the totality of human nature on himself, yet without sin, Christ was able to be that mysterious Redeemer prophesied of many years ago. And the mystery of how he would be able to accomplish this came through his very nature. Not only was he true man, but he was also true God. In this, Christ was able to make satisfaction for our sins. In his divine nature, he was able to, in his, in his broken human body, stand before the wrath of God. And because of him, we no longer have to fear the presence of God. We can say with the beautiful words of the catechism, he has fully paid for all my sins and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. And in the words of our passage, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The wages of sin is death, yes. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. By his death, he destroyed the power of death. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to our second point. Having saved us from the power of death and turned it into a gateway to eternal life, there still remains a problem. Our flesh is corrupted by the effects of sin. We have death woven into our very DNA. There is a clock that started the moment we are conceived, ticking down the seconds until the day of our death. What are we to make of this? The Apostle Paul is right in that though our flesh is corrupted by the effects of sin, we're spiritually washed clean in Christ, and he has made satisfaction for our sins, but what does that do for us if we can't live out in eternity that peace which he has bought for us? If our bodies will wear down and break down? What does it do for us if our bodies give up 
our biological clocks come to an end. Ecclesiastes 12, when the years draw near in which we say, I have no pleasure in them, when our limbs begin to tremble and our eyes become dim, when we rise at the sounds of birds because we are unable to sleep and our bones become brittle, so brittle that even the smallest of heights becomes something to be feared. When the weight of all the years presses in on us, what are we to make of it then? It is in these times when the words, death is but an entrance into eternal life, hit home all the more for us. But we ask ourselves, with this body in which I live now, do I want to live in this for eternity? But there is an added benefit to what Christ has bought for us. There will be a day when our bodies will be raised new once again. In those times, the word of, words of Job become all the more marvelous when he says, after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. And if there was any doubt to what he means, he says, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, not another, how my heart yearns within me. It will be our flesh that is raised. It will be our bodies that are put together again. But they will be transformed into something more wonderful. And herein lies the mystery. How is this to work? This we don't know. Yet looking forward to that final day, we are told it will be true. We will have our very own bodies and our very own eyes will gaze on the Lord himself. We will not fear that our death is the end, causing us to slip into nothingness. Nor will we have to worry that we'll be completely destroyed simply by coming into the presence of God. But rather we can look forward to the words of Paul, we shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That is how we will face eternity. In Christ and because of Christ, we will be transformed. These bodies, which are ours, will be glorified and they will be made perfect. Verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. For eternal living with the Lord, it's a necessity. But it's also a certainty. All of those things which wore down our bodies will be taken away. The effects of the passage of time will be wiped out. But more than that, the consequences of the corruption of sin on creation will be taken away. And that means for our bodies as well. There will be no more twisted limbs, no more mental illness, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more arthritis, no more slipped discs, no more cancer, no more genetic illnesses or problems. All of the effects of sin wiped away. All of the little bits of death invading our lives, bound into our genetic material even, 
gone. Verse 54, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This is what lies ahead of us. This is what lies beyond that gateway of death. This is what Christ has bought for those who believe in him beyond that entrance into eternity. He has freed us from the condemnation of the law. God has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. And we'll be able to experience it more fully on that great and final day. So then, in light of that, how ought we to live? Although the gateway to eternal life lies ahead of us, our new life begins now. Today, this very day, Jesus calls you to follow him. He's brought you from darkness into light. He has already brought you from spiritual death to life if you believe in him. Our old nature is crucified. It's put to death and it's buried with him. Yes, we will still struggle with the evil desires of the flesh. That will happen. But they no longer reign in you. Jesus reigns in you. He is the one who's overcome the temptations of the flesh, the attacks of the devil, and death itself. He reigns in you. Have you fallen into sin this past week? Remember these words of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, if you struggle with temptation or if you have fallen again, despite the fact that God has granted you this way to escape, come again in repentance to Christ. Because in Him, your sin will not win. Submitting yourself to Him again, it will not reign in you. Run to the shelter that He provides. Genuinely pray for forgiveness. Honestly recommit to living in the new life that He has already bought for you living for him. Look to his word for strength. And lean on your brothers and sisters in Christ. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Your new life already begins now. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your only Savior, it began. And so, in the words of the final verse of our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, in light of that new life, in light of what he has already worked in you, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the, word, in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our struggle is not in vain because he has already won the final victory. He has defeated death, and he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Stand firm, fix your eyes on Christ, and follow him. Amen.